intro. Um, in addition to being a flatmate of Esme's, um, I have lived in the church community houses for the last couple of years. Um, I am queer, um, so I identify as non-binary, I use she or they pronouns, um, and I've been a Christian for four years, which is actually not that long, it turns out. Um, and I first came to faith uh, in this church, sort of. There's a podcast. <laughs> ask, ask for the link later if you want more. Um, but for, for this Sunday, um, Rose asked me to share some of my stories, some of my testimony. Um, and also, if, if I felt prompted, to um, share a little uh, about the, the chapter of Luke. Um, for those of you who haven't come before, we're going through a journey at the moment of reading through Luke and of re-encountering Jesus um, through these gospel stories. And um, I read through the chapter of Luke, chapter 7, and I was like, ooh, ooh, there is a story I want to talk about. Um, so I'm going to try and thread the needle today and talk about both me and um, this, this story in Luke. Um, so I'm just going to ask Flora to come up and read. Everyone give it up for Flora. Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, he returned to Capernaum. At that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said. For he loved the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I am not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. Thanks, Flora. Let's give it up for Flora. Woo! So that was Luke chapter 7 verses 1 to 10. And it is the story of a Roman centurion coming to ask Jesus to heal this beloved slave of his. And I really wanted to talk about this because I first 
encountered this story in episode one of season five of Queer Eye. Um, in this episode, the, the five fabulous queer people of uh, Queer Eye are making over this priest in Philadelphia who is gay. And he cites this story as an instance of queer representation in the Bible. Uh, according to this priest, the Roman centurion uses this word to describe his slave that basically implies that they're boyfriends, that they're lovers. And I was delighted, <laughs> delighted that this story was in chapter seven and I get to talk about it. Um, because I so want to be able to see myself and people like me in the stories of the Bible and in the stories of the church. I so wanted to see a story where my queer identity would be sanctified and approved of in God's eyes. So, I decided to go and do a deep dive on this passage and see if this is queer rap. Um, and the answer is kind of complicated. <laughs> so there's this hot debate, right? Um, the, the queer reading of this passage first kind of surfaces in the 70s. And it goes like this. The centurion and his slave are in an intimate relationship, a sexual relationship. And that relationship is similar to a modern relationship between two men, a romantic monogamous partnership. And unlike all other Jews at this time, Jesus implicitly improves of this relationship because he doesn't comment on it. He heals this slave and he praises the centurion for his faith. But as I said, it's complicated. So in response to this reading that comes out in, in the 70s and in many years since, um, there's been a sort of, I guess you'd call it a, a heteronormative response, although I don't mean that in a, in a sort of disparaging way, um, where, where other critics have come forward and said, look, silence doesn't mean approval. We don't know what Jesus thought about this because he doesn't say anything. And some critics go even further. They say, there is no way Jesus would have approved of a relationship between a master and a slave. There is no way he'd approve of that. Because at the time, what that meant was an older man having sex with a very young boy who was literally enslaved. No one should approve of that. And the fact that Jesus heals him and praises the centurion is in fact evidence that they weren't in a relationship. But life is more complicated than that. Um, so, so the reading of this passage kind of trades on the meaning of two words that are used to describe the slave. So one is this Greek word, pais, which can mean a child, a young slave, a boy, or the junior partner, in a male-male romantic partnership, or rather, a sexual partnership. 
The other word that is at issue here is the Greek word antimos, which means precious, honoured, or dear. You would have heard in the reading that Flora just did that this slave is described as, as dear to him, as precious to him. And some people believe that this description implies a kind of emotional bond, a kind of a, emotional romantic connection between the two that's different from simply a master-slave relationship that you see elsewhere at the time. On the other side, people just say, well, he could just be saying the slave is very useful to him. He's just a very good worker, and the centurion doesn't want to lose him. But in researching this, I noticed that this, this kind of dynamic of whether or not the centurion is queer is not at all, not at all the point of this story. The point is that quite apart from the centurion's identity as a military figure, as a man of power, and as a Roman, occupying an oppressed territory in an empire. Jesus points to him as a man of great faith, greater in faith than anyone he has seen in all of Israel. And so I, I really I felt struck by this gap, right? This, this sense of desperately wanting to be seen, to be acknowledged for an identity that I hold in my kind of worldly context. And then God coming in and giving me a new identity that's not really grounded on any of those categories. Just as the Roman centurion's queerness, relationship status, social status, power and influence, isn't the point of that story. My identities, the ones that I want to bring in, the ones that I want to read in, aren't what God's trying to show me. And that is absolutely carried forward into my personal journey with God and my witness of how God has worked in my life. So before I was Christian and before I came here, um, I was a very rational, proudly skeptical philosophy major and a practicing pagan witch. <laughs> and again, there's a podcast, so I'm going to go very lightly here. Um, <laughs> Through a very unlikely chance, I encountered the risen, incarnate Christ. And my identity went from these categories that I'd given myself, these worldly notions, to a new identity, a Christian identity. I went from a religious space where I could determine what I wanted to believe and what I didn't want to believe. 
I could determine what I said, when I celebrated holidays, when I didn't. All meaning was in my hands to a space where no meaning's in my hands. And I have to wait for knowledge from God. I went from designing religious rites to performing ones that have been written down in a book for tens, sometimes hundreds of years by old, crusty people that I might not approve of. Um, and from a, a very rational, very like mentally credible position to believing in something because of a literally incredible, a supernatural experience. And when you tell the story, people look at you like you've just joined a cult. <laughs> Another story. <laughs> um, and, and this has very much been the tone of my relationship with God, that he takes these identities that I'm given by the world and he transforms them and he subverts them. I also, at the time, was in a very comfortable, hotshot, high-paid marketing job um, where I helped big companies make lots of money out of the lots of money they already had. Um, and at a point in 2021, I got a word from God and he said, quit your job. And I was like, why? Because I said so. So I did. So God transformed this identity I had as a, as a capable and independent, financially solvent worker into an unemployed student, totally dependent on the welfare state and on the generosity of my friends and parents. Um, and sent me to study a degree with absolutely no economic value, theology. <laughs> At about the same time, I also was asked by God to move into some community houses here at Blueprint. Yeah. Now, at that point in time, I was also known to both myself and to others as a gay that's very independent, um, but also very introverted, self-sufficient, borderline anti-social person who definitely didn't need the company of others. I was very happy alone. And I went from that life in this lovely two-bedroom apartment, like an ensuite and a walk-in wardrobe, to um, living at the stables, which... <laughs> <laughs> For those, of you don't know, for those of you who don't know, it's an old backpackers with 13 bedrooms um, and it's quite dark and grungy and I had nine flatmates that year. Um, and so I, I, I transformed from this independent anti-social person who could do well enough on their own to someone deeply enmeshed in a community of people, for better or for worse. Um, who spent most of their time with others. Um, I went from someone who didn't really want to talk to strangers to someone who talked to strangers all day, every day, for hours at a time, um, simply because they wanted someone to talk to. And even more recently still, 
Um, in my studies, I failed. I, I literally failed an entire term my studies last year. Things got really hard, and as, a, as an ex-gifted child, that really hurt. It really hurt my pride. Um, and this, this identity of like a failed student, a dropout, to that God said, I think you should try again. And I think you should actually double down. I think you should move cities in order to study more and uh, essentially do the same thing, same papers, same university, again. And, and sort of, that, that's a terrible idea on paper. <laughs> Um, the only thing that's changing is that I'm losing absolutely all of my support network. And God was like, yeah, do that. Um, and so he transformed this kind of sense of, of failure, um, of being a bad student, into someone willing to double down on that. Um, because it's not actually about my grades. It's about learning about God. And you can see in, in all of these kind of vignettes, there's, there's this theme of looking incredibly foolish, of going from someone who is outwardly very successful. You know, I, um, at 26, I had a great job, I had a great house, and I thought I had life sorted. And then I encountered Jesus, and I became unemployed, um, I failed at study, and I became foolish, irresponsible, and naive about living with strangers, never locking my front door, um, and throwing my money away on a venture like moving cities when it seems like a bad idea. But those are just my worldly identities. My identity in Christ is someone who is a leader in this community, a teacher, someone who's taken the knowledge that I received in the courses that I did fail um, and passes them on to others. Someone who not only belongs in community, but creates places for other people to belong. As someone who not only succeeds at this life that we've called, we're called to, to be the hands and feet of Christ, but who can prophetically call others into doing so. So God is transforming our worldly identities. Sorry. God is transforming our worldly identities through Christ, through encounters with Christ, into godly identities that reflect the kingdom, but look like foolishness to the world. There's actually another story in Luke 7 that um, illustrates this beautifully, and I'm going to ask Jerome to come and, and read that one. Yeah, Jerome. Yeah, Jerome. <laughs> This story is called Jesus Anointed by a Simple Woman. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. 
so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him the story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to another. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, cancelling their debts. So do you suppose, sorry, who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he cancelled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, Who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Give it up for Jerome. So that story really illustrates the sense of God's view of our identity conflicting with the world's view of our identity. There's this woman who has clearly got a reputation, um, and Simon the Pharisee goes, there is no way you would let this sinful, unclean woman touch you if you knew what I knew about her. And Jesus challenges him, and he renames this woman. He renames her identity, not as a sinner, but as someone forgiven. Not as unclean, but as faithful, as someone who has shown great love, greater than Simon the Pharisee. And um, there, is, there is this particular line that really struck out to me in this end passage. Um, it's chapter 7, verse 44. And Jesus says, do you see this woman? And it's clear from the story the Pharisee doesn't. Or at least he doesn't see what matters. He doesn't see what Jesus sees. So where does this leave me and my desire to be seen? To see myself in scripture? 
instead of reaching for my worldly labels and looking inside the story for those, I must ask myself, do you see this woman? Do you see the kind of person that I call you as in Scripture? And my experience is a witness that I do. God has used who I am, my willingness to talk, my willingness to do things that are foolish, to try and seemingly fail. And he's used those to build up this new identity as a leader, as a teacher. But he's never asked me to give up the identity of being queer. My identity through Christ is a witness to my belonging in the story, queerness and all. I see through Christ's eyes that I am loved, that I belong, and that I'm needed, and that my queerness is loved, belongs, and is needed. I'd like to finish with a time of reflection on the identity that the world offers you and the identity God offers you. So I'm going to read a poem by T.S. Eliot called The Journey of the Magi. Um, and it's about the three wise men and their journey searching for the star and um, encountering Jesus as, as a child at the end. Um, and, and the poem has this kind of sense of like moving through a world that wasn't quite what you would expect. And the Magi come and they, they witness the birth of Jesus, the birth of this new world. And at the same time, they witness the death of their old identities and this old way of being. Um, so I'm just going to read this poem. And then I'm going to uh, pray a little bit over us at the end. Um, but as I read, I just invite you to kind of feel your way through where um, God might be pointing to identities that you've held, that have been given to you by the world, and an identity that God wants to offer you through Christ. A cold coming we had of it. Just the worst time of year for a journey. And such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp. The very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melted snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes the terraces, the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women, and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages 
dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Then at dawn, we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a water mill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door, dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wineskin. But there was no information, and so we continued. And arriving at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you might say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down, set this down, this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but I had thought they were different. This birth was a hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our palaces, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation, with alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. Jesus, I pray as we move into a time of worship that you help us see where we must die to our worldly ideas of identity. Help us to witness the birth of our identity through Christ. Amen. Um.